0: Welcome to Zero Fucks Given. My name is Krista DeLuca. You're here with my wonderful boss, Carson Block.
1: Esteemed. And
0: whatever. And <laughs> Freddie Brick. And we have. What?
2: I'm not your boss either.
0: No. All right. Just. We'll
2: okay. go.
1: That's, and... that's not how the budgetary process works here. And who's our very special.
0: Hugh is our very special guest. How are you?
1: Uh, fantastic thank you for asking (laughs) and by the way he's Uh, Hugh Hendry
0: uh, Hugh Hendry I'm sorry
1: um all right so you were going to ask me to give a little background on Hugh right yes
0: absolutely
1: okay cool so I've known Hugh for several years and you used to run Eclectica which was a global macro fund and then you moved to St. Bart's and you were on Twitter and now I just stumbled across this YouTube channel where you're in the bathtub in Paris. Yeah. And so I guess my like top of mind question is what, what are you doing now? What's going on?
0: Hey, Carson is rock and roll. It's finance rock and roll. Um, I'm now on a permanent tour between I'm ricocheting between LA, Venice beach, St. Bart's Paris and London. Um, I, I would like to, uh, dismiss any rumors that I have been inca- incarcerated. Uh, you do see me in less than humble surroundings. I did not touch anyone. I was not carrying any product for anyone. You happen to find me in a hotel room by the airport, not of my choosing, but sometimes international travel is like that. But to answer your question, I am. Um, I have moved one step. Further forward to, to the edge of the abyss, I am a financial raconteur! Uh, I, I discovered with the closure of my hedge fund that the thing I missed most wasn't investing other people's money, but it was the, the showtime. It was having an idea and wishing to subject, subject it to the ridicule of others. Um, And so that is what I am fully engaged upon now. It's remarkable that without a Bloomberg, without paid-for stimulants, uh, there's maybe something in the Wi-Fi, but when it mixes with my tour of duty, my experience, my filters, what can I tell you? Like today, I can see dead people.
1: Wow. All right. Well, I do just want to... I think wow. put one one important caveat out there.
0: You seem kind of boring compared
1: to this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I mean, he's in like four places oh, in is one it? week. In Why like
0: isn't Hugh th- here with us?
1: Because Austin's not on the St. Bart's, Paris, oh. Venice, beach, oh. uh, something else uh, itinerary. Yeah, yeah circuit. But okay. um, I'm hearing about what's that
0: funky place in the desert? The art scene. um
2: Burning Man. Burning Man
0: no that's I mean, not texas or is it no that's california or no no. no no the martha martha Martha, Martha. There, should you i go know. there i am i'm hearing it's got a good vibe it, yeah i i went there it's um i don't know uh, i mean what
2: I, whoa huh? what every what? monday i come in i'm like oh hey how was it we can you like you know i to... played with the dog and yada yada you like went to the desert and did mushrooms and didn't tell us
0: yeah, well, I, th- you guys, you're on a different, I'm on a different level. I'm here, and you guys are here.
1: What is here? Still trying to understand Hugh's that. Hugh's,
0: like, but... up there.
1: Okay, so. Anyway. All right, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. By... So, Marta is originally where the first, I believe, Prada store was. Um,
1: Prada? Wait, in the middle of nowhere, Texas? <laughs> yeah, <I mean>, actually, <laughs> it
0: is, I swear. You can look it up. You can look it up. that's how it's,
2: you have, know true. a country it's, has it's, no history it's, it's very... when when the oldest thing there was a Prada store that is literally that is the sign of how shallow and lacking of depth the country and is so now okay. it's more the
1: like the okay not name. all right well that's cool I want to hear about dead people so Hugh what's yeah. what, what are the dead people I and mean, what do they want
0: well i I feel like I've seen. The, the silo of the missiles kind of move over onto the launch pad and the steam come out and I've watched them depart and these aren't missiles these aren't this isn't Elon going to Mars this is these are missiles of financial destruction which are going to rain upon us i believe they've been launched i'm unsure as to where they will land first but i know we're now in motion and i am getting ready for and fearful of impact.
1: Okay. So what what are the particular missiles that you're talking about?
0: The particular missiles really are the consequences of the chauve-souris. Um, chauve-souris is the French for a bat. A bat is commonly thought of as being blind. Um, the French with their sophisticated language, the direct, the literal translation of chauve Suri is a bald rat. So I think of central banks as being bald rat-like and blind. And normally I can, normally I can just ignore them and, and filter them out. But they are insisting on playing what I deem to be a very reckless and inappropriate game of raising interest rates in a recession with debt levels of between four and five times the size of the global economy. And they're using the benchmark of the famous, talk about Martha and whatever, Martha rather, uh, the seven-foot Texan in the 1970s when he did the same thing, except he did it at the end of a 40-year cycle of deleveraging, and not a 40-year cycle of leveraging. Um, And to assume we would have similar uh, results I think is foolhardy. And so I, th- I fear their, their tinkering and their blindness and um, could have significance of a magnitude of at least 2008.
1: Okay. Cause that's what I was going to say was 2008. If you describe these as macroeconomic missiles or policy missiles in 2008, the system was really pushed to the, the brink and it's still held. So it it's hard for me to be totally honest here. It's hard for me to get that. There's really a recession. I think there are a lot of contrary data contradicting data points as to whether there is a recession. Um, for years leading up to 2008, I had expected the housing market to implode and the leverage in the system to become a, a massive problem. But I just, I don't see. I don't see anything like that right now. I, yeah, I, I do feel like this is, you know, while while there certainly can be, you know, policy errors that lead to um, higher levels of high levels, maybe of corporate defaults. I don't know what. What am I missing in the, you know, not seeing the Armageddon?
0: Well, you're not seeing impact. Uh, you're not seeing impact. Um, and I speak both in hyperbole and. Uh, with profound uncertainty. I I don't don't speak with certainty. Um, I'm speaking of things that might happen. Um, And I'd ask you to contrast that with policymakers who talk of of definite things. We're definitely not in a recession. Um, Language and the nuances of language are keys which sometimes unlock some subconscious thinking and allow me to get the glimpses of the future the absolute determination of the Fed to resist the classic definition of a recession being two consecutive quarters of uh, of contraction. Um, It's two consecutive quarters of contraction. It is not qualified by the degree of contraction. Um, It's the first time in my career where I've ever seen it challenged as not being a recession. And then this notion that we should wait for the wise economic council tell me you you know better what is the
1: the private organization which is charged with determining the economic cycle so we're talking the fed here or oh and uh um the national uh, the nbs national uh, yeah statistics
0: yeah I think nb blah 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 yeah yeah um if you look at when they (laughs) again there are other when when they wake up they go yeah, yeah it's a recession typically the S and P is down between thirty and fifty percent so good luck waiting awaiting the official confirmation too late too late so uh, you can't see anything uh, the Indian rupee is collapsing the Chinese currency had is now on its biggest drawdown versus the dollar annual drawdown versus the dollar annual calendar year drawdown almost ever. Yeah, um, you have this energy crisis in Europe, which is um, demand destruction. You have a central bank, which, on top of the profound demand destruction from the energy shortage, is raising interest rates to what to destroy more demand. Um, you have the Japanese yen at twenty-five year lows, and the significance of that which is perhaps not as obvious to others, and I'd like to expand upon that, Um, you have the sovereignty of Europe now being questioned, not by its assimilation of different cultures and politics and what have you, but by the fact that consistent political folly has left it without a perpetual source of energy. And I believe sovereignty is related to energy, to being able to source, you know, with energy is certainly my joy, but um, I don't believe you're a sovereign without um, a sustainable, independent source of energy. So, I mean, we could spin that bottle and take one of them randomly. I'd be happy to, but you know, you start adding all of them up, and it's quite considerable.
1: Well, you you talk about how previously, when when such large hikes happened we were in a deleveraging cycle and we're in a leveraging cycle i mean isn't this time to bring an end to the leveraging cycle isn't it time to deleverage because and if you you know if you say well look at all these bad things that are going on it'll never be the right time but i mean really what seems to have happened since volcker uh, took those actions is that I mean, the debt debt in the in western economies has piled up to enormous levels. You, you rent, you reference that. Um, And every time that becomes a problem for us, every time there's a macroeconomic near catastrophe, whether it's the internet bubble, the housing subprime bubble, then COVID the cure for too much leverage is, has been more leverage. I mean, we, you know, to an extent we're reaping what we've sown I would think. And, yeah, like there's never going to be a good time. And I really do question whether Powell has the actual balls to really try to break the cycle. I don't think he does, uh, just based on how Trump you know, pushed him around into rate cuts that were completely unnecessary in 18. But yeah, isn't this, I mean, isn't this the medicine we need?
0: I um- well, there's a danger in being puritanical. You know, there's a danger in being the Andrew Mellon Secretary of the, the States and, and demanding that we purge the system. Um, I lost myself, I lost the calendar years of 2009, 2010, 2011, demanding what, 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 what you're, you're saying now, bring it on. you know. Have, having seen the excess Having seen the errors, having seen the politicians come to understand that the situation was perhaps beyond their means to rectify, and then beginning to ban truth-telling via short sale bans, etc. Yeah, I wanted to purge the system of its rottenness, Um, and I was wrong then, and I think you would be wrong today, because of the profound misery that you would be imposing on ordinary folk who've already endured a very mild form of depression. And so to put on that hair shirt, I think you would actually be bringing forward a moment where the political system might reject market-based um, economics. So, you know, and I'd say to you that there's nothing... That, bubbles are sustainable. They're kind of inglorious, but they're sustainable as long as debt is serviceable. The folly today is they are messing around with the sustainability of how the economy can sustain the
1: debt. Well, I guess the, so there there are two things, two major pushbacks I've got right there. And this is, again, philosophy of, whether this is good policy or why do or do not uh, pursue further hikes. But number one, it's almost as though previous policy error is too big to fail. I mean, to me, that, to me, that just, to me, that seems completely unacceptable. And maybe I'm oversimplifying things, or you said I'm being too puritanical, but how can we have compounded policy error become too big to fail? So, we don't mess with it. Number one. Number two, you brought up the political element, but even during the relatively sanguine days of pre-COVID, um, there was still growing inequality. I mean, look at the rise of right-wing populism in Western Western countries during that time, since the financial crisis. And I, I understand 2009, 10, 11, 12, probably too early to pull the rug, but, um, you know, since then, if, if things were great, how and why do we have this explosion in right-wing populism? Um, I mean, may, maybe it could get worse, but I think inequality has a lot to do with it. And, and certainly the owners of financial assets who, in many case, if you're just long house some stocks, I mean, you haven't really put in effort to get wealthier. If they suffer losses, that might actually be somewhat of a political, politically stabilizing, societally stabilizing event.
0: Yeah, so I, I don't I did at the time, and I had to recant. And um, the the errors of my judgment again, 2009, 10, 11, um, I think led to the demise of, of my hedge fund, ultimately in 2017. Um, in March 2009, Citigroup was trading at, let's call it seven bucks, maybe it was nine, um, which was the same level as prevailed in nineteen seventy seven. Um, but it was too; it, it was overstated. The true value was zero. It was bankrupt. You know, and back then Citigroup was kind of like the J.P. Morgan. It was like the dominant banking franchise. It was bankrupt, and the Fed was forced with that. The, the redux of, of the early 30s. Does it stand aside and listen to me and purge the system of its rottenness? Or does it intervene and prevent the bankruptcy of the, the, the American banking, the global banking system? And it intervened. Now, it did not intervene on its own. It intervened as an agent on behalf of every citizen, of every nation. And, and therefore, what that meant was that within a nation, there is the disenfranchised, and by that I mean those who have the misfortune of youth wisdom or lack of or utility not to own assets. And they had to underwrite and bail out those more fortunate that owned assets. Okay? And the problem is they've had to do that again and again and again. And That, as we know, that gap has only widened. And I think it ferments the political right wing or the the kind of the polarization within our political economy. So I believe the Fed was right to make that decision. If I was to criticize the Fed, it would be the purported and um, it would be the, the attempts to raise interest rates in 2013, and 2015, and 2018, um, that I reject because they were raising interest rates um, within a depression. We had never retained the growth rate of 2.8 percent. We had we had got nowhere near it in 2013 with the the shadow tightening of quantitative tightening. We, didn't, we weren't there when Janet was trying to raise rates just a tiny bit. We weren't there when the first incarnation of Jay uh, sent markets down 20%. Um, that's, that's my, we're, tied to, we're tied to the fact that they had to bail out the system. Okay. Now, on top of that, there is a really, really, really complex thing going on in terms of the explosion in asset prices. Um, and I believe the, the, the culpability of that rests with principally the Chinese, but let's say with the mercantilist uh, economic policy where you outsource demand creation. And you do so by a kind of vendor financing. We'll build it, but we'll finance it, right? Here's the money, you spend it, we'll build it, okay? The Chinese do not trust their citizenship to have a consumer boom, you know, They don't believe that, the the CCP don't believe that they could, that their political economy could have withstood the economic ravages in North America of 2008, or of the years 2000, 2001, 2002, or the 1970s. And they they believe the responsibility for the economic vicissitudes on the economy is these silly consumers. And so they... They drive, there is an institutional format, which is long in the tooth, which creates surplus savings, which they transport to the US via the purchase of US Treasury bonds. And in total, we're talking $7 trillion. And it's like, it would be wonderful if America was in the 19th century and you were building canals. You you were building multiple railroads to the same destination. We were rolling out telecoms and building chemical plants, you name it, right? It'd be wonderful because back then there was a deficit and America was borrowing from the rest of the world. America's domestic spending needs are well serviced by domestic supply. This is the surplus savings thesis of Bernanke from many, many years ago. And what that does is it crushes interest rates. And with that discounting mechanism, you send asset prices of the least risky businesses to infinity. And you transform an industrious society into one that is reckless in the pursuit and vulnerable in the pursuit of speculation.
1: A lot to unpack there. Um, That does. Does that does remind me of a book I read some years ago by uh, Duncan? Can't remember the last name, but it's talking about how current account surpluses, or massive current account surpluses, like in Japan in the 1980s um, and in Southeast Asia in the 1990s, have led to uh, the inflation of of assets um, and well, asset bubbles. But um, let me let me throw it over to you guys. Like, where do you stand on this?
2: Yeah, it's nice of you to punt it over to me after Hughes sounded smart and we're not macro guys. So maybe 30% of that went in. But um, you bring up China, Hugh. You were quite um, opinionated on China way back when. Lots of people had the Yuan trade on. Um, Where do you think China goes this time? Because it does actually look like things are really really bad on the ground there and this idea that they could slowly let the air out the bubble does not seem to actually be the case we're seeing widespread um, refusal to pay mortgages the shadow banking is unwinding fast and i think what's really interesting for me is When you look at the controls that were instituted on Chinese people during COVID, specifically with like the COVID kind of reporting on their phones, China is unsurprisingly using that as a form of population control on top of the pretty aggressive surveillance infrastructure they have. So when you see people deciding to go out and protest and they're pissed off that's a pretty heavily weighted decision because it's not like, Hey, I'm just going to join a rally. No one knows I'm there. Maybe I post it on Facebook. That is like, I'm putting my fork in the ground that like, fuck the CCP. Like I am really pissed off that the home equity in the 15 apartments I own is worth nothing. And I can't sell these things. And my life savings, my parents' life savings, probably my grandparents' life savings have all been funneled into that. So I don't know if we're necessarily not as aware of what's going on in China or if it's just hard to actually get a real handle on what is going on in China because of the sensitivity to information leakage. And on top of that, you now have Xi who is clearly jostling for power as he's about to position himself as ruler for life. So, what do you think happens? Is this is this the time when it all really does implode in China, and and how does that actually impact the world outside of China, not just from a commodity purchasing perspective, but actually interlocking trade with the rest of the world?
1: Well, the U.S. listed Chinese companies will still report record revenue. And record revenue, yeah,
2: yeah. That that'll have right. no bearing on Alibaba's just up and to the right growth.
0: <laughs> My thing is. I'm damned by by China and and by by the euro because I it would seem that I've been a perpetual pessimist with regard to those two areas. If I may, with regard to my culpability, my point is that there has been a religious cult like belief in the euro, the sanctity of the euro, and the Chinese economic model, which. Which led to the pricing, the, the almost certain-like pricing of some macro instruments, whereby I could choose to speculate and say I don't believe, and the penalty for being wrong was was boring, but it it wasn't a penal execution. There was convexity convexity, however, if I was right, and on the several attempts with those trades, the timing was out. With regard to China, I was out by 10 years. I had a blow up fund 10 years ago. Now, you know, I, I kind of, I laugh about this, but I'm kind of a little bit kind of taken by, I, I'm a time investor. And like I've said, I think, Carson, we were talking about this, yeah, you know, I'm going to keep this short, but um, the calibration of time is somewhat different in China. Like that, the the, uh, what do you call it? The astrology, you know, the the heavenly motions. You know, for us, it's the rotation of earth around the sun. Um, obviously, that's uh, one year. The Chinese system is 10 years. 10. If 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 I'd added 10 onto my thesis 10 years ago, it would take you bang into today. Yeah, so who so tongue in cheek? Um, I think it's the real deal but then many would say i yeah you said that the last time tell me this where do you value chinese real estate what, what trillion dollar number do you put on it
1: you you guys would know <laughs> well i'd have to check how, how many tabs uh, is that model about 150.
2: we keep adjusting
1: yeah um no i so the short answer is we wouldn't know but the um unfortunately um but getting back to well, get, getting back to that and something that you'd said earlier about Chinese consumer and consumption, I've long had this theory that when you've looked at um, when you've looked at the growth of household consumption in China, in, at least through several years ago, it had compounded at 8% a year uh, from 2000 onward. And so I felt that rather than saying, oh, well, Chinese household consumption it it needs to come up because it's only 40, 45% of GDP. It should be at 60 or whatever it is. Um, I felt like really the way to look at this was the inverse. And this was telling you that since that, since the household consumption was compounding at a healthy pace, this was telling you how much waste there was really in fixed asset investment in China's GDP print. And that was, I mean i think you probably got you know by this measure probably would have gotten to 30 35 percent of china's annual gdp being what i would say is excess value destruction because obviously in every economy there is some level of value destruction but relative to what one would expect and maybe it's 30 35 percent so household consumption actually never really was that disappointing so if you take that view which No serious economist I've ever put this to has, (laughs) has taken that view or like given me the time of day or even, you know, not headed right to the men's room. uh, You know, as a flight excuse to end the conversation. Um, Take that point of view. That would tell you that perhaps the value of real estate in China is especially the built real estate is significantly lower than where it's been marked.
0: Yeah. But the, the, the high mark, um, was approaching. 90 trillion on a 15 trillion economy.
2: The Spanish are looking at that thinking, God, we really could have gone much harder. Why, why were we so limp dick on that?
1: Yeah. Well, because nobody ever said Spain is growing really fast,
2: except the Spanish.
1: (laughs) I don't know, man. They're not under the. There were, there were
2: some Irish. There were some Irish banks that thought Spain was growing fast. Yeah. Um,
1: but I would even argue, by that same same logic that I presented, that fifteen trillion dollars overstates the size of the, uh, the the Chinese economy.
0: No, it it, it does. And so, I, I mean, again, it it all relates to the aftermath of the Great Financial Crisis that the um, to sustain or to find itself committed to these preposterously unnatural high rates of GDP growth in the aftermath of 2008. And uh, the there clearly, there was a rebound in the West. Clearly, we went on to establish new, new nominal and real GDP highs in the rest of the world. But again, the rebound never took us back to trend. And so each year below the prevailing trend, if you will, it was a deficit year, and therefore it was a deficit year that had to be made up, if you're committed to the historic growth rate, it had to be made up, the, the gap had to be made up for by a new contribution to GDP growth, and that gap which you, I think, correct, correctly alight upon as being about a third of total GDP, was made up for by uh, a residential property bubble, and Fixed capital formation—you know the, the the construction, let's say of um, high rail, high-speed rail, um, whereby the cost, the nominal cost today of it, would never be recouped from the utility function of moving people from one conurbation to another, because the GDP, when the GDP per capita is say. Five thousand dollars, and you're moving them to another conurbation where it's six or seven thousand dollars. But the rail, the rail links cost you ten billion. Those people are not in a hurry. If those people were on seventy thousand bucks, and you could take an hour out of that journey, the the utility, the social utility, would overwhelm, would far exceed the ten billion dollars of the construction. Whereas it was always the reverse. And so it was phantom phantom GDP is GDP, which does not add to wealth. And so the lie in China, I think, which you guys identified very early on, was that the GDP was never substantiated by the stock market Mm -hmm. because there was no wealth created.
2: That being said, when they built the high-speed rail, I, I want to say off the top of my head, it was like 200 billion or maybe more that kind of project it was a great excuse for graft. I mean, how much of China's nominal bridges to nowhere roads to nowhere was just a really convenient excuse for graft. And that money has ended up here, right? More than anywhere else, maybe or the city Canada. of London,
1: Canada, and it, it pushed was... up the value, the values of real estate globally. Yep. But yeah, I mean, the Ministry of Railways was um, at one point in time, easily the most corrupt part of the entire Chinese government, the amount of money stolen from that. And uh, reminds me of that company that we looked at years ago. is was listed in Hong Kong called Tibet water. Oh, yeah. And this was, this was beautiful because the problem when you rip off a bunch of RMB is how do you move it offshore? So th- that's what you, you need to launder it basically. Um, well, Tibet water seemed to be, theft and money laundering built into one. And so what Tibet water, it was a company that made bottled water and nominally the retail price of it was in China was a decent bit higher than that of Avion, but it's only customer was the ministry of railways, which gave it away for free on the trains. So basically, and
2: because it was in a really remote part of Tibet, they built the track to extend out. So they could literally like turn up and pick it up, which was like a good way to graft money on that end. And on that end.
1: Yeah. But the best part is it was real money that was being paid by the ministry of railways to right. take that water, which created an actual value for the stock that paid dividends. It was in Hong Kong. So it was basically in a fully convertible currency at that point. So that's how it was theft and money laundering built into one the powers that be, basically they owned, I'm sure shares of Tibet water. They collected the dividends, they sold the stock all while it was getting paid on shore uh, by the ministry of railways for, you know, what was probably water with, you know, some level of like urine in it or something.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I I remember that one in particular. We, I was, working on the IPO it it was super hot like everyone knew it was super hot and no one really knew why it was super hot but everyone knew it was super (laughs) hot because you're like yeah water and you're kind of like back enveloping it and you're like okay maybe they can actually produce that much water and uh I think it was the American club or the China club I'm, I'm sat there and I look young now as you frequently remind me but I looked really young then and I think the chairman was so bothered by the fact that someone like so young and inferior was placed in front of him at the China club that he took my business card, he drew a picture of my face on and then just gave it back to me at the end of the no meeting. Right. Yeah, it was true. Like China chairman, we're really just here to do a bit of shopping and hang out with our mistresses while we kind of graft some cash. And uh, yeah, he gave it back to me. I, I should have kept it.
1: Was it a good picture of you?
2: It was not bad for a guy who had a pen. Bullpen- ballpoint pen and like one of those kind of like slightly perforated cards that wasn't that easy to draw on it was it was not bad
1: yeah Yeah. okay well evidently he'd spend some of his excess cash on some drawing lessons or something like that
2: yeah i'm not sure he had much else to do with the ministry of railways um so hugh i want to pick up on something you were talking about earlier how you had been bearish for a while on a few things and we were discussing earlier macro fund management and how it is the greatest asset class because it basically means here's the money do what you like with it um and i had two questions my first question is why are all macro guys bearish i'm yet to come across a macro fund manager who's telling you, ah, stock market's about to go up 6X for a good reason. Maybe they'll tell you like hyperinflation is going to cause it to go up 6X, but, and then they'll reference the Zimbabwean stock market. But like, is it just rule like dropped on our heads like that? Uh, What kind of confluence of things leads you to macro and then bearish?
0: I kind of want to push back a little bit on the macro being the best. Um, macro, back in the day, was the highest honor, like to be granted the mandate to do macro was almost like being appointed, <coughs> forgive me, for being appointed 007, to be to have a license to thrill, that you were unconstrained, you could do anything, yeah? it, just not lose money, okay? Whereas every other Muppet, was in a silo, and their behaviour was strictly regulated. You must do this. You must not do that. The he- the macro manager was like, "I have so much admiration for your skill set. You know, entertain me." That's okay. Why no
2: one's ever pitched us on doing a macro fund. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now I'm talking 15, 20 years ago, and 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 the world reined that in. Okay. Now, secondly, in the reining in and the Pigeonholing, but the when you got when it became it was not family offices and entertainment, and it was I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars minimum. Um, it became one of how do you fit into my portfolio, and and macro became um, you were what were you were long volatility, uh, you were uh, charged with developing an independent series of returns independent of the beta that was fueling the global economy or the global financial marketplace because you were not benchmarked to one thing so what was like the the, the greatest asset that you could you could be ubiquitous actually became the hardest thing because it denied you uh, the beta which has made many a hedge fund manager billions of dollars PA, especially in the year 2020, 2021. Um, I was a macro manager at the end of 2013. And I wrote to my clients and I said, what if I was, you know, I was paraphrasing um, entourage. What if I was to tell you that I had turned bullish and that the most likely path for the S&P was higher and higher and higher. Is that something that would make, is that something you'd be interested in? And my team and the CEO who'd come in and repackaged us and taken us from $50 million to $1.5 billion said, if you press send on that, it's the end of the franchise. And I pressed send and it was the end of the franchise.
2: Carson, if we're ever in a situation that is remotely similar or even close to that AUM, I'm chop your finger off
1: you're to, and you're gonna hold him back. Dude,
0: I'm gonna chop both his
1: hands off. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking like I don't need that. Like, I'm, you know, 1.5 billion, I wouldn't fuck with that. Like, that's that's a great job to you know to have. But okay, so basically, you're saying that what ended up happening was macro managers were paid to bet again to to bet basically not in line with beta maybe against beta in some ways because you're in allocation in somebody else's book as opposed to somebody who's got a very large diversified book so de facto everybody became bears in global macro that's that's what you're saying yes yeah
0: and and you 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 were, you were long volatility and you spent your time um finding convex uncertain convex return structures where the punishment of being wrong was not career defining, you know, because of the pricing. Yeah. You know? um, but I I I believe the Ministry of Transport is more responsible for the elevation in the S&P than quantitative easing. Okay. But where I would fall in with the consensus and central banking and quantitative easing and financial assets, I think without a doubt, quantitative easing systematically brought volatility down and therefore destroyed the macro community between the years 2011 and and 2020. There was systematically long volatility and One Each year, another central bank joined the fray and each year volatility uh, fell lower and lower and lower across all asset classes. So
2: my, my question is, lots of macro fund managers have lamented how destruction of volatility was just a nail in the coffin of that strategy. And was there no appetite to say, look, fuck it, you have money with me which can be massively short vol. We're going to go far out and biggest piece of shit we can find out the furthest out on the curve. And we're just going to own boatloads of it because that's actually pretty non-consensus among the other macro managers that you have money with.
0: I I disagree that everyone else was, I don't think they were necessarily doing it consciously, but um, like being heavily leveraged and heavily short vol, um, was the unconscious go-to place, and therefore, if you volunteered to participate, then what was your role in a portfolio? You were just like the other guy. You know, it led to my eviction. Now that, and you know, the folly of my personality, whoever I am and whatever you know, but that's another story. But you know, um, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not playing a violin and saying you know la di da. I'm just trying to give a historical account of that time. Um, And then every year, there would be, the sales mission would be, this year is the year for macro. And it's just like, you said that last year. You said that last year. You said that last year. Yeah. Um, And I'm not going to say it, but central banks, if a macro strategy played out when central banks really asked up, yeah, and um, for the last 15 years, they've been pretty tight. Been pretty tight. And macro returns have not been there. And I, I, but they're really assing up now. And um, as the and ret- I'm not volunteering to be a global macro manager. I'm not, enter- I'm not coming back and entering the fray. I'd ha- I'm, I'm happy being a raconteur. But my God, if global macro cannot make a fist load of money in the next several years, then it should be abolished as an asset
1: class. When I think of global macro managers, I think of a guy in London, it's like five drinks in by the end of lunch, tons of leverage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Still in business. Still in business. Does this sound like one person I'm describing (laughs) you or like a dozen? (laughs) it sounds like (laughs) one person that certainly i was aware of not me heaven forbid
2: how much does the mark to market play a part in disrupting a, a thought process in macro because in short selling it's incredibly painful and you know our risk management process is much more focused on getting out the way of a speeding train than being heroes and be like ah we held it to zero and it went up like 10x and you know i was convulsing under the desk but we were there in the end like that's just not our approach to risk management and for some people it is you obviously have constructed five
1: drinks by the end of lunch would help (laughs) (laughs) not convulsing under the desk you're just you know riding it out
2: Um, (laughs) (laughs) macro obviously in the trades you've looked at you generally are trying to construct trades with much more convexity, which equity guys suck balls at and and it doesn't necessarily always lend itself to convexity. So how how does writing it out and the mark to market and the pricing instruments really fall into how macro management works versus how you might trade your PA with a similar thesis?
1: Well, in corollary question, since the financial crisis there's a lot less liquidity in the cds market right um yeah i mean that obviously was where you got the, all the convexity um in the uh, subprime trade so yeah how much did that impact um your life as a macro manager just when the cds market wasn't what it used to be
0: well i mean just right there on the subprime um i was a Big believer in the underwriting pen pressed at your spine, and that if you eased up, boom, you, the dagger was touching your skin, sort of thing. You know, keep focused, yeah. And so, but back in two thousand and seven, we either had bi-monthly or monthly. There was a point where we ran the half, half of the life of the fund was have it was weekly. And then we moved to monthly. Um, in uh, March of 2007, we had you know Deutsche Bank's Greg, whatever he's called, you know Mr. MBS, and um, camped out in our office in London because you know Deutsche Bank he wasn't welcome, <laughs> so and you know s- signed up for the trade, you know, and this is literally you've bought you know something bad's going to happen. And you've bought a million damn Hershey chocolate bars trying to find, or Wonka bars, trying to find the golden coupon to visit the factory. And we had found it. We're like, yeah, okay. And we we, we start putting into the portfolio. And the custodian bank based in Dublin, I think we're almost certainly having five, very large, tall glasses of Guinness at lunchtime. But they came back, and you, there, was a, there was a degree of legitimacy, but they came back and they said, these instruments are a bit funky, and they're a bit new, and we're not sure as to the mark how reliable the mark is. And as your custodian agent that's a problem for us because we make a market in your NAV. And if we're not confident, then we can't provide the liquidity in your fund. And I was like, get out of here. <laughs> what? And we had to take the trade off. Can you imagine? We had to take Charlie's bloody golden invitation and put it in the bin. Can you imagine
2: that? Find a new custodian. Yeah, like you must
1: have had the shittiest custodian in like all of hedge fund world. I I have not heard that. The communication was via (laughs) facsimile.
2: Oh, they they might have been the most advanced custodian in Ireland then.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. But imagine going to your clients and saying, had a bit of a disagreement with my custodian bank and fired them. And I found this new group with a better answer. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you might need five glasses of wine to pull that one off. you know. So, um, and in return, what happened, it loaded us with complexity. You know, you had liquidity on the other trade. Um, we had to create, and it was simple, forgive me. It was, you know, it was kind of binary, you were right. And and you made a lot of money or went to zero, right? No, no. And, and we had to construct something convoluted in fixed income with, with options and and forward options, forwards on forward. I mean, just in doing so, we created something which had no negative carry, but it led it 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 left you the victim of a very um the, the journey was profound you know literally the air conditioning wasn't working it had been raining it was cold outside and your breath was heating up the winds the windscreen and you kept going are we there yet sort of thing you know and the return finally came literally at midnight like you know uh what is that uh, 16 months or no uh, 14 months or whatever of like oh uh, you know and then boom, we got we got home so you know, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've answered it certainly with, with an anecdote which kind of just not only do you have to find the damn trades, not only do you have to give great, almost more precedent to the journey, it's, it's almost easier to identify the outcome of the destination. It's harder, and you have to be really alert to the dangers of the vicissitudes of the journey there. And I... Don't, I And with experience, I'd almost almost say the greater the convexity, the more challenging and circuitous the route to point B will will ultimately prove. So, I mean, that's just called experience.
2: And were banks just more willing to create these highly complex structures? We're quite familiar with the process of phoning up a counterparty with an idea to which we already know the answer is no. And they'll just carefully explain how they get to know
1: well but i i'm sorry to take that question out of the inside of Hugh's mouth but just i would point out that yes because banks are a lot more regulated now they can't take the other side of the trade so there's i would i but would there's think always there's a com- lot less they're willing to do
2: but there's always either korean retail or private banks right where like that stuff all kind of trickles and sits eventually all credit suites.
1: I mean, I'm not sure how much shit risk you can lay off. Because usually they I mean I think the the shit risk they lay off into the private banks is the underwritings done by the investment banks, right? Like the shit bonds and things like that. Um so you uh, know to take the other side like some true. structured product that some hedge fund wants to put together. Um
2: yeah that that trade like the hey we've got a smart hedge fund that wants to do it in synthetic like Cat's out the bag on that. Um, I got to assume a decent amount of that equity vol like sits in those structured products probably in, in private banks. I know, Krista, I'm also dying to know about forwards on forwards. Um, we'll probably have to investigate that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess my, my other question is um, in your interactions with bank did did you have those tense moments where they were phoning up and bitching about collateral as the whole world was falling apart or was it actually quite scenic you were just kind of sitting in your office click a few buttons everyone goes home has dinner or uh yeah was it this like moment before christmas as you described it
0: well well again if I go back to the instance of two thousand and eight, which you have to because you know we, we came within a heartbeat of the global financial system going bankrupt. Um I I had a client that had the wisdom and the kind of network, the wisdom to know that something wasn't right, a desire to find a hedge, and the network to know to be sent to me um and they got an amazing deal because they they came in like i was small and they were they were big and you know and so they got 50 percent discount on on everything and they'd come in i want to say december 2007 january 2008 um and i had a fault in my system in that and I'm embarrassed to say it today, but there you go. I will. We had, um, again, this is in the context. You know, When they came in, I was $100 million. I had one PB, Morgan Stanley. And they came back over the summer and they were very upset about having one PB. And by by late summer, no one was going to take you on, clearly. And certainly not at 100 million sites. And I got, they were from all the, all over the world, but I remember being summoned to an Italian restaurant in New York. And they said, we've got a guy and he's down 30% on the year. Now, I was down three. So three zero versus three. And he said to me, he gets it. So I was like, Okay what does he, what, what he get? Because <laughs> I don't want it, but, you know. Um, and and they fired me. And, and like, I was kind of, I was like, I'm sorry, hold on a second. Like, the F below me is moving. I'm sitting on a geyser. I mean, <laughs> say that again? You want your damn money, Mark? You bloody idiots. Uh, and I, I stood out. I was like, you are morons. I, I remember the... The, hang, the what do you call it, the napkin hitting the guy's forehead and bouncing off like I'm, I'm out of here, right? Um, and you know, Lehman's happened. We made our ret- having waited for the best part of 13, 14 months. We made all the money in like three days, and we had half the fund to redeem. And as I had said during the persistent due diligence, um. We are the liquidity. They have to escape the damn trade. They were on the phone hourly begging for us to take it off. And that's how it played. Um, and maybe it helped having the fact that I had to liquidate anyway. Um, and we made 50%. You know, in the worst financial calendar month in a hundred years, we made fifty percent. And you would think that would be legend making. Um Perhaps as a rock and roll star, but not as a macro hedge fund manager.
2: Does it um does making money like that, like in the the one shot, does it take the edge off just gradually chipping away? I mean, you know, the way we work, it generally boils down to a few decent ideas a year, and there's concentrated risk around those events and when it goes really well, there is, there's a relief, actually, that's the overriding sense, there's, when it goes better than expected, there is like a rush of adrenaline, and a feeling of satisfaction, and it's quite a, it's not like scoring the winning goal in, the FA Cup final, which it's nice that I have someone on finally who will get that reference because it's obviously lost on you. Yeah, Johnson. it might
1: as well be the Robbie Williams Cup. I have no idea what you're talking Hugh, about.
2: Hugh, you know who Robbie Williams is, right?
1: I'm the FA Cup, yes.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> and does it does it take the shine off buying a piece of real estate, levering up three times and coming back in five years and being like, oh, I, I made some money doing that?
0: Well, finally you should say that the most spectacular investment returns I've ever made have been uh, from St. Bart's real estate. Oh, so, okay,
1: yeah. so so Christ was telling us that you're 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 pitching St. Bart's real estate pretty hard, but I didn't Yeah,
2: you know. he's gotta get out the trade. He's, he's liquidity. <laughs> <still quitting>
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's that Irish custodian bank doing? <laughs> uh,
0: I, I'm not I'm I'm not pitching it. I mean it's you know um but I you know, you asked the question and you know, and you mentioned I, I, I didn't have that, I should have had more leverage on that trade. Um, I haven't. <laughs> it's the wrong way around. I'm somewhat fearful of that. Um, but I think there's something about um, my, I, I am sure I'm making this up, but you know, uh, there is some kind of story that with the first engagement of my parents with a um, with teacher. Parents' evening, kind of, you know, was lovely, child, but for one so young, he, my, my God, he worries, and, and I, I want to say, I found the the perfect role that 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 compensated me for the what wor- I was going to worry anyway. I mean, I discovered in St. Barths, I would worry about the pernickety stupid details of the color of the serviettes, the towels on the, you know, the sun loungers, as much as I worry about the composition of the damp I am designed to worry. And thankfully, I found an engagement whereby I, at least I was rewarded for my persistent and skillful worry set. Um, And so within that, I find that the, the losses there, there wasn't that natural symmetry that purportedly um, purportedly explains life pain and joy uh, I, I, I i find it more asymmetric but arguably that says more about me than it says about you know
1: uh, the financial markets it's all very familiar we're we're warriors and lamenters yeah. <laughs> um over here cool well you yeah, it's been awesome catching up man really appreciate you reaching out and um i would love to see you please add austin to the world Rockstar circuit yeah. that you're on or yeah. tell us yeah. tell me
0: i i want to say i'm coming because i've got a collaborator uh, john who arranges all of these 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 engagements and and he's from right on the 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 Texas border at the, the Mexican border, and and he it was him that was telling me about Marta and things and I, I think I'm definitely um, th- that's that I'm coming I'm, right. I'm coming See?
1: Okay, I'm coming okay. cool I I mean I probably won't do the desert thing myself um, that's more of a Freddy thing but listen when you're the acid capitalist you got to do the shrubs and, uh, you know you, you don't have to leave the city to do that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but you gotta gaze at the stars and and like you know you've get down with the nature. Actually,
1: you know, I, I gotta tell you, when I've been on shrooms, I've, it's been so hard to leave the hotel room. Like, I just get super you freaked get so out. Paranoid. Yeah, it's like you know, ten <laughs> attempts to leave the hotel room before I am finally able to do that. So, uh, yeah, um, but anyway, um, you know, I'll I'll figure it out. If you if you come to Austin, we'll we'll figure something
0: out. I'm coming.
1: Well, thank thank you all for the the
0: um the spirit of the the bon vivant spirit um much
1: appreciated you've cheered me up in this box that i find myself in turned into the evening so thank you all right well as i've told people before if you come to us for the upside like things aren't (laughs) going so well yeah things clearly aren't going so well Well, but uh you know hopefully that will turn around